1: Reading now an excerpt from Watergate, The Corruption and Fall of Richard Nixon by Fred Amory. If 1971 was a non-election year for Nixon, there was no such thing as a non-political year. His memoirs make this plain. As each day brought the election closer, and as the competition heightened, the need for action and information became irresistible. I ended up keeping the pressure on the people around me to get organised, to get tough, to get the information about what the other side was doing sometimes i ordered a tail on a front-running democrat sometimes i urged that department and agency files be checked for any indications of suspicious or illegal activity involving prominent democrats i told my staff that we should come up with the kind of imaginative dirty tricks that our democratic opponents used against us and others so effectively in previous campaigns ladies and gentlemen welcome to all the president's minutes i'm your host blake howard joining me is the only person who aptly Uh, begins the minute that they are discussing with the word schmuck uh, is one of the most hilarious and just ridiculously talented film critics in the world, Bostonian critic for WBUR and a stack of other places, my friend Mrs. Sean Burns Sean, welcome to all the President's Minutes
2: I'm happy to go anywhere you introduce me
1: (laughs) he's the best Um, (laughs) let's look so many of the minutes we've started to discuss, we go off on massive tangents. And I know that Sean and I love to go on a many, and many, many a tangent. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually try and keep to some form of discipline right now and uh, dive straight into this minute. Sean, you'll hear is an uh, insane cinephile and, uh, and we'll, we'll sort of discuss. But let's get to Harry Rosenfeld, Jack Warden. Let's get to a shrinking Woodward in the face of the fact. That he doesn't know who the special counsel to the president is, Charles Colson, um, and uh, and let's you know let's get to the, how Charles Colson's philosophy of to winning over the hearts and minds of the American people manifests in this minute, and then we're gonna <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it.
0: And we're gonna have to fire this schmuck at once because he's so dumb. Oh, who is Charles Colson? The most powerful man in the United States is President Nixon. Huh? You've heard of him. Charles Coulson is special counsel to the president. There's a cartoon on his wall. The caption reads, When you got him by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. Operator, do you have a listing for C.M. Grimes in Bali? Hello, Mr. Murrow. Okay. This is I.M. So I'd
2: like to... On the company. Howard Hunt, please. One moment, please. Howard Hunt
1: here. Yeah, I understand. Hi. 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 Hi, I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post.
2: I was just kind of wondering why your name and phone number were in the address books of two of the men arrested at Watergate. Good God. Do you care to comment? that the matter is under adjudication. I have no comment.
1: Jack, Warden, when you got him by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. I should have that on the studio wall. I should have that on the studio wall in my little home office studio here, Sean.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jack Warden. we don't have character actors like that now, right? I mean, that's why Bill Camps in every part. He's kind of the only guy who can do that, just walk in, like, he just relaxes into these roles like they're an old pair of jeans or something. Yeah,
1: it's just not... Um, there's just no artifice. You know, he just comes and he's... And completely... I always think about him in Dirty Work, you know, Norm Macdonald's little movie. Like, <laughs> right. like he's... Like, like, there's sort of Norm... Who just so beautifully is like seems like he's in another time zone to every other human being in the world when he's around them. Like, (laughs) and then you get like Artie Lang, who is very, 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 very funny. But Artie's like, as an actor, like as opposed to being a comic or natural when he's on the radio, because he's just like his natural self is like some of the funniest, he's one of the funniest guys in the world. But it's like, but, but Jack Warden feels like. Jack Warden feels like he's in that world. Like when he's playing their dad, like he's just, he's just, he is their dad. Like there's no distance. He's just completely immersed in it. Just sweatpants wearing gross dad. And you can totally tell that like, he's the reason that, you know, it was one of the greatest bits of casting ever. And I think um Artie Lang would agree is like Jack Warden as Artie Lang's dad is like one of the best bits of casting ever. F- forget. forget. Yeah,
2: we were talking before about him and shampoo that last scene with him and baby in the morning is just there's so many different ways an actor could have played that and warden comes in under the scene you expect him to blow his stack like you fucked my wife and my daughter and then you know it's totally calm. like how do you work what, what makes a guy like you tick
1: <laughs> but you can tell like that isn't that such a smart bit of casting because anyone who'd seen jack warden up to that point is like oh shit He's gonna twelve angry. <laughs> men. He's gonna twelve angry men, Beatty. It's all over. Yeah. Like and, and then him him to come in and undercut like that. Um, but I think one of the things we did say off air was, I'm a hundred percent sure that Beatty had that conversation in Hollywood in the seventies all the time. <laughs> there was, there was, well, a,
2: they say right what you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was. He
2: <there> <laughs> told town, "I'll handle this scene. Get the other part." <laughs>
1: there's yeah rob just put the pen down man i know you're okay at this but i got this i got this scene um there's a it was this really silly i can't remember where it was whether it was the golden globes thing there was uh, a uh, alex rodriguez the baseball player with jlo at the globes i think uh, standing there at a table, and someone had said, like in the in the wrap up of the evening, there's the the crowd pan shots, and it's just full a litany of like TV and film celebrities, and there's this moment where Beatty is talking, um, Beatty's talking to J Lo, and you can and Beatty's standing up, J sitting down, and A Rod sort of standing up behind him, and there's a crowd of people trying to sort of make their way out of the theater, and you can see A Rod sort of slowly moving in between the two of them to, like, (laughs) do it. And 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 so someone just clipped it on Twitter. I have got to find it. But someone clipped it just right back on my bullshit, like, as far as Beatty, you know, like, just, like, trying to Mr. Mr. (laughs) Steal Your Girl. Like, I just thought, God, that is too funny. But let's get back to this minute. All the President's Men, 1976, Alan J. Pakula. It is a complete and utter staggering masterpiece of morality and just people, people working really hard and hitting roadblocks and continuing to work sort of tirelessly. And this scene is just so perfect because we've had other scenes and we'll have other scenes with Bernstein, who's like a bit of a hound, um, as Hoffman (laughs) plays him and who's like, you know, listening into conversations through doors while he's casually having a cup of coffee. You know, trying to get in on stories and stuff. And you get to this moment where nice little bit of information's come through in the evening. It's come through into Woodward's, like, like basically while he's uh, chilling out at home in his messy apartment. You know, H Hunt, W House. You know, <laughs> oh sorry, W H H H W H and uh, and H Hunt uh, and and Howard Hunt W House. And so he comes in and starts making some phone calls. And this and the first phone call gets into this Colson's office, which is the great introduction of the scene. But it then unfolds into this beautiful, long investigative scene where there's a whole bunch of dump of information. And it's just so beautifully put together. Because in so many, like... And, I, and the, the one movie that just drives me insane when I think about it is something like Attack of the Clones, you know, one of the Star Wars prequels where every bit... <laughs> It's the it's the most egregious example of there are so many conversation scenes where they're trying to move the plot and George Lucas only knows how to you know have people talking to each other, standing and talking in the same exact way, shot with at the exact same range, <laughs> and it's just a litany of digital backgrounds that are like changing the mechanics, or well, what he thinks is changing the mechanics of them just having a conversation, two people, but it may as well be two people sitting down at a coffee house and just talking because it's just. The same shot but this is just a really masterful conversation now is
2: this our first split diopter
1: i it think is. it's the first one in the movie it right it's the I'm, first the first split i'm person. so
2: proud i was here for the first because <laughs> there's about 200 more
1: coming <laughs> it's but it's so great that new but like you 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 think about it right what a flex you do to go i built the whole washington post like like the people (laughs) you know what i mean like we we built this in burbank (laughs) you know this this thing and like people at the post walk in and go jesus like (laughs) you literally ripped our whole newsroom off it's right here and you know i think that that's that's the credit to the landscape it's that cool Mm -hmm. thing of like everyone else is just going about doing their thing presidents where is it sat for you i know you've I, i know you've obviously recently watched it for this show um, and you quoted my, probably my favorite quote. These, these are not very bright guys, um, uh, talking about this, but where does it sit for you? You're, you're a, a fan. Well, I, when
2: I was in high school, I went through a huge, like Nixon obsession when I was in high school and I, I read, I read this book, of course I read the final days I read. I think it's part of like my, my inherent hatred of authority. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and actually it actually was passed down from my dad, who just despised Nixon so much he hated the son of a bitch. And Nixon resigned on his birthday. Oh, so every year, you know, especially lately, the past three years, I'm like, we're hoping to get you the same present you got in '74, Dad.
1: <laughs> it's just like Happy Birthday, Dad, and then it, like written on a cake, and then underneath in brackets, impeach question mark. Right.
2: But yeah, my dad had the entire, like, you know, like 10,000 page transcript of the Watergate hearings. Wow. (laughs) Like the doorstop size, you know, you can buy it from, uh, you know, the government, the National Archives or something. You know, he was just, he hated that son of a bitch so much. So, of course, you know, that's when I got into it and realized, yeah. (laughs) And and thinking, geez, a lot of these fuckers are just corrupt. (laughs) So, yeah, I, uh, I became obsessed with them. And then, you know, the first. When I finally saw the movie, I was like, "Oh my god! It's only the first half of the story." Yes, where's the rest of the movie?
1: Yeah, where's the rest?
2: <laughs> and it took me a while to come around and realize it's absolutely brilliant because everybody knows. Yes, and you've kind of been watching the same scene over and over again, and to watch the movie, it's like, how many different variations can Picula and Gordon Willis find to come up on pretty much the same scene? <laughs> yes, And now they're going to get another name, and they're going to confirm this. And we all know how it's going to end, especially, I mean, you think in 76, it was so fresh in everybody's memory. Yeah. So it's really more, it's just really fun to watch. And from a cinematic point of view, all the overhead shots and split diopters and how many, how many ways can they make, you know, they say you'd, you'd pay to watch Robert Redford read the phone book and you like literally do.
1: <laughs> He's so beautiful. He's the only actor Is like, hey, 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 this Academy Award winning movie. <laughs> And nominated. I read the phone book.
2: Um, Which is funny because it's implied that like the Hoffman's the one who gets laid all the time.
1: Yes. There's that Bernstein line. You're like, you're a hound. My girlfriend told me about you. And you're like, uh, isn't isn't it funny that lies we allow cinema to tell us? (laughs) We're totally fine with this. Um, it's, It's one of the great things where, I was in in heat, and to reference a convo I had with the great Manola Dargis, it was just like she's like for a movie with such deep authenticity, it's impossible to believe that a graphic designer. As in Amy Brenneman's character, Edie would have this apartment with this view in L.A. It's just impossible to believe. And she's like, "But that's just one of those romantic things we'll just completely let slide." For a movie that's so deeply authentic, we'll just let it slide for the pure romanticism, and that's that's fine. And if the if, if the if the if the folklore was that he was that guy, that's great. Look, I, I want to come back to something that you said because I think I just want to reinforce it for folks. And may, we may not have talked about it with a couple of we definitely cover it on the show so far, but I just want to keep underscoring it is, you know, these guys begin their investigation in 72. Nixon is ousted in 74. Like you said, the story of all the presidents men, the book, um, you know, takes you through, you know, from the very early days of their investigation as I discovered in the film, and then past the tipping point that we just see in teletype and on the and on the telegraph coming through. Um, and that's what weirds me out now watching it more in 20, 2019 and then 2018 and 2020 is you're, you're watching this going they're most certainly producing this while these guys are like still writing this like while it's probably still in the manuscript stage you know what and 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 the law is and you know take it with a grain of salt is like the Redford's talking to these guys while they're writing these stories saying if you guys write a book I want to buy the rights. And if mm-hmm. you, and if and when you guys write the book, like I'm gonna and, and being involved, like I'm gonna star in the movie and I'm gonna be producing it. And even as something as simpler touch as the original Watergate security guard Frank Wills is the guy who plays the Watergate security guard in this movie. <laughs> so it's just one of those weird things where you know I think a lot of films talk about it, or we've you know you and I hear a lot about it because we're sort of in the film Twitter stuff, and you're hearing about the stories of like oh they got this guy to act in this, and even in Clint. Uh, Clint's recent movie, the uh, uh, the 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 train movie in Paris, where he's got the three guys who survived the terrorist attack <laughs> playing themselves. You know, some yeah, that worked like, out exactly. Like it, there's this, there's there's this fine line between stunt BS and legitimate sort of. I don't know. There's this legitimate sort of encapsulation of like taking real people who are involved and just sort of sprinkling them into texts. And making this weird thing happen where you're like, there's a very, there's a very, there's a, such a rich authenticity in this, in the way that it's being approached. It's just weird. It starts to be strange because it's so specific and it's so on point. Um, and especially while you're
2: watching the two biggest movie stars in the world.
1: Exactly. That's what's strange, right? It's like almost everything around them. And it's, and, um, and the last time I and the
2: guy from Once Upon a Time in the West, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you like you're like it's literally it's literally the exact floor of the Washington Post, and then you're like, oh, there's Jack Wharton. <laughs> you know, like it's, <laughs> it's it's you know that's it's uh it's one of those really strange things that I continue to find in this movie, and I love it, I really do. Well,
2: Martin Balsam looks like he lives
1: there, so you know. yeah, <laughs> everyone looks like they live here. It, <laughs> um, the, the the great robots. Uh, Jason Robards, who is going to get talked about many times on this podcast, is um was famously like hanging around, like did his most method acting thing I think he's ever done in his life, which is he hung around on set. He just used to sit, <laughs> he used to sit in Bradley's office no matter what scene was happening, just with his feet up on the desk reading a book or like reading the <laughs> like, reading the paper, because it's like it'll just feel better if everyone knows that Bradley's here. You know, yeah, the so, boss is here. The boss is here. So, so if, if there's something happening, but this minute specifically, it's great. Like you said, split diopters and the biggest, this is what's so cool about Jack Warden. You can believe that Jack Warden could dress someone down and, <laughs> and Redford's performance in this moment is so cool because he's such, he's an actor that like you do not associate it with being dressed down ever. Or like when, yeah. he, when he is being chided, he's usually like you know, like you think about Butch Cassidy and Sundance, also by Bill Goldman. It's like, like there'd be times where Newman's like chiding him, and he's just like he just stands stoic still, like he's just a wall. And the fun and the the humor is the fact that he just doesn't respond to any of Newman's BS. But in this, he's like. Shrinking like the beginning of this scene, this massive guy is shrinking, feeling like a complete dummy, and it's just so wonderful. It's just a really great touch in this whole movie to see how he gets like dressed down so bad. No, he's I mean, he's terrific in it, and it's great. I the thing I love about the movies, there's no shit about
2: their home lives, yes, or you know, this is not like the girlfriend going, Why are you working so late? Why working? <laughs> All the scenes we hate, the movie skips over them. Yeah, And it's not, it was funny watching it again, it's really not concerned with you knowing what's going on. You just kind of get the gist of what they're supposed to be doing, Yes, and a lot of things aren't really clear. Well, I guess they have to find this out, but you know, if I had to write out everything that happened, I would not be able to. I would have in high school when I was obsessed with this shit, (laughs) but to to explain how one thing gets to another, it's just mostly this this incredible atmosphere. And what one of the great analog movies. The best notepads and typewriters. I used
1: to have this giant electric
2: Olympia typewriter that I used to just pound on.
1: (laughs) I, I am so jealous of that typewriters these days. I'm like, I want ink on my fingers. I want to be wailing on a keyboard.
2: Oh, it was so cathartic when you'd be writing, when you'd really get going on something, and then, you know, you slam the carriage return, and all my sisters probably could never sleep in the other room, and I'd be up thinking, I'm fucking Hemingway.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, I (laughs) miss some
2: horse shit about the Doors movie, probably, right?
1: (laughs) And the balls balls on this guy's stone to have a real naked Native American. Oh, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it's the best part of the movie. Um, What's so weird is um, just how much I want to smoke in this. I just want to smoke all the time I watch this movie. It's so bad. It's like you really shouldn't, but this movie you just absolutely want.
2: Yeah, but what's... The ashes are everywhere. Movies, like, that's another thing. Movies never cover how cigarette ashes get all over the place. And they're constantly all over Dustin Hoffman's tie no, <laughs> on yeah. the couch. Redford's always cleaning the ashes off <laughs> wherever he was sitting.
1: And, and and it's it's one of the first movies that it feels like because it's so on point in its time that he actually addresses it. Because in so many movies forever, like, you, you know, all the way back to, you know, Maltese Falcon or whatever, or like where Bogie's just like smoking. So like constantly, it's like no one ever mentions the ash that's just going everywhere. But in this one it's like so great to him like like is there any way you don't smoke? Like there, yeah, in me, the elevator. In the elevator. Come on, man. <laughs> give me a break. Um yeah, no, it's it is it is analog porn. I I mean, I in my day job and for preparation with podcasts and criticism, if I'm taking notes, a hell of a lot I'm writing down. I don't know what it is, but for me like the tactile thing of like having written the note, it just embeds the information in my head so much more than when I'm just, when I'm just simply typing it down, especially if I'm trying to. Oh yeah. Well, it's a the
2: psychological thing because you see it while you're,
1: you see it while you're doing it. And there's
2: like a motor skill connected to what you're putting to paper. So,
1: but I do love that. So. It's also the truth of the notes that, that even though we are seeing notes being taken and a couple of things, are. Uh, legible it then just devolves into multiple colored pens doodling <laughs> doodling like just scribble because that's the chaos you've done like an hour like an hour or two just non-stop phone calls with a whole bunch of dead ends and you're not gonna bother scribing <laughs> the entire call of a dead end call you're gonna take the pertinent notes of the calls that actually open up and become something rather than just nothing. That's that's what's so perfect about it.
2: And it's so much fun to watch something, an investigation before the internet.
1: Yes. You know,
2: oh, they have to they have to look all this shit up and, oh, now you got to go to the library and you got to go to this office. And...
1: Where, where do you think that started? Because that's what, there's nothing more infuriating in contemporary things. Even, like, the speed of the contemporary discovery. I know you can Google stuff, but one thing that I hate is... And maybe it's like a born maybe maybe sort of they they mastered it in those born movies of like I need you to hack into I need you to hack into this camera outlay. I just want to see someone have a conversation with transport. Like you know what I mean? Like if (laughs) if they're about just the agony of like call transport, even the line change. Call like transport and ask for the feed to those cameras in the and watching them go where he's in there. We've got eyes on him. Get those cameras up. How far away are we? 30 seconds. Just something because I just don't maybe like, maybe I'm completely naive in a world where there's so much like NSA, (laughs) like they can just listen. (laughs) They're listening to (laughs) this conversation. They're watching you poop, like whatever else they can do like on your phone. But it's like I that there's no tension and seemingly every government organization can just click a button and they have access to every single feed possible. um, Well,
2: this is why, right, the Coen brothers said they'd never write a contemporary thriller because it would just be people sitting in front of computers. Yeah. There'd be no fun. Because they are talking about, I think it was in Revelation, the part in the No Country for Old Men with the the phone bill. Yes. With with sugar, you know, that great sequence where he's tracing the phone numbers. And they're like, yeah, now this would just be a Google thing and, you know, no
1: fun to watch. No, absolutely not. And and even just the, you know, instead of that beautiful, glorious scene of him looking at his reflection in a TV, like a TV <laughs> that's turned off in his reflection there and like looking around and scanning the room. He's already, ha- he doesn't go to the house.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> or <he laughs> right. opens the door and no one's in there and he just turns away. And he goes back and dials Google on his phone and he's searching immediately their phone <laughs> records. It's 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 kind of stupid. It's it, but here is here's the grind. This is this is what's good. And it's like in a modern context, it's nice to think that people and this is what is so great about Jack Warden. Maybe this scene and probably the whole movie is that these guys aren't great journalists at the beginning of this movie Mm -hmm. and for jack warden to have faith that he may not be the best like the most effortless guy yet like he hasn't got his his process down but he sees something in his passion and his hunger to be good that he's like like he's grooming him in the best possible way to be like you can be actually really good at this job and it's nice because it He's so affectionately shitting on him at the beginning of this right. scene, and he's not being fired. Like it's so dumb. Like I think it's like people. It's screenwriters have turned like life into these stupid shorthand moments, and when we see them like lean onto these tropes, you are just like God damn it. And some of them can cheesily work. Like if you if you if the tone of the thing works. But I so much prefer this like the grind. Like this movie is the grind, and you just get addicted to it, and you can just watch it over and over again. This porn of the guy. Well, crime. if you think
2: about, if, if it were made today, how much dumb shit there would be about the other political reporters oh. who wanted to take the story over, you would have this whole dumbass rivalry, you know, in addition to all the scenes with the wife and the girlfriend at home saying, why do you work so much? And then, you know, they would lose a scoop to the the hotshot political reporters. You can see the hacky version of this movie yeah. so clearly while you're watching it. Yes. And that's sort of the miracle of it, that they've just pared away, you know. <clears throat> And trusting the audience, like, you know, that we don't have to, we can get the gist of it without having to follow all the little details, not have everything over explained to us. And it's just about atmospheres and environments. I mean, the great Gordon Willis, oh, I got to see him at Harvard once. And what a, what a wonderfully crotchety man.
1: Oh, <laughs> Tell me everything. I must know. <laughs> oh, who, it was too, who, I, who did he shit on? We need to know everything. This is the oh, podcast. The guy, where-
2: the, the, the guy doing the Q and A had a rough night. <laughs> was, oh man! Because all it was just you know it was exactly what you wanted him. He was just talking about nuts and bolts. And he's like, this is how you express an idea with the camera, and this is and every time that anything got airy or you know sort of the way you would get at Harvard. Q and A sometimes you would just bash it right down. So
1: this is a technical, this is a technical art, right? I can adjust things.
2: Look at the fucking fluorescent lights in that newsroom. It's the most beautiful thing under those wide angles. I mean, they just go on for days behind
1: them. Yeah. It's like a football. (laughs) It's like a football field of desks and, and they do such a, you know, they do such an amazing job of like every desk being a little bit of calculated mess. There's some islands of people who've clearly got some like OCD where they keep their desks really clean, but it's usually just (laughs) like where it's, it's just mounds of paper, copy, copy desks, new editorial teams here, this everywhere. People like constantly on phones, hovering around TVs. It's just a stunning, like, it's it's like Monument Valley, John Ford Monument Valley, but it's in, but it's but it's a newsroom, like it's just like flowing through, just so perfectly. It's yeah. It, when
2: I interviewed uh, Ben Affleck for Argo, he said like he said this whole thing to the cinematography. He said, I want it to look like all the presidents met. I want just like trash and shit everywhere. I <laughs> I want every desk messy, overflowed. Don't change the ashtrays.
1: Yes, that's that's a good note. That's a really good note as a director. Oh
2: cuz you can smell that office. You can smell the stale smoke in the air and you know, everyone has horrible coffee breath, you can just feel it.
1: <laughs> and and my favorite thing is and people are bumming smokes and there's notes for and there's notes for messages. Come get your messages and there's like 12 <laughs> stacks of notes. You know, th- this is the thing. If for some reason the American lottery goes off and you know um or even the australian one for that matter because it has such a high thing i just want to recreate the watergate office and we're just going to fill it and smoke in it and have paper (laughs) we're just going to create a publication and a podcast studio that is just paper and messy desks and corduroy jackets and smoking and that's just it it'll be just a team of people and, and, up, and, say, uh, and, and, and Matt Zaitz and Manola Dargis is the editors in pairing offices where they just have their feet on desks.
2: <laughs> right. We only want to see you out here with a red pen. Yeah, and Matt just killing the first line of everything <laughs> I write.
1: <here. laughs> oh, bless.
2: So my most surreal, oh, the president's men's story, I, since I can't stop name dropping in this podcast, I guess. So this is I'm great. at Sundance. I'm watching the uh, a documentary about Dick Cheney and two seconds before the movie starts, there's a seat that's been taped off. And one of the volunteers is like, that's where Redford likes to sit when he comes here. I'm like, Oh sure. Cause you know, it's like wherever you go, everyone's like, Redford's going to come to this movie. Redford goes to like four movies, the whole festival. <laughs> you know, you never see him. It's like the Sasquatch. You get a Redford sighting once. He does like the press conference on the first day. And then he's just, you know, he doesn't want to hog the, I understand. He doesn't want to hug the spotlight from the filmmakers. So when he wants to see a movie like he did here, he slips in like 30 seconds after it starts and they just walk him into the seat. So the seat's kind of in front of me. So and he's directly in my line of sight. So I can't pay attention to the movie nah, the movie's dumb, because man. I'm watching, I'm watching Robert Redford, watch the movie, which is like, you know, I watched him read the phone book. For <laughs> <laughs> so I'm watching him watch this Dick Cheney documentary and you know, he's getting, Every time Dick Cheney says anything, you get like the Redford that's shaking the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they cut to all the, you know, there's a lot of talking heads interviews. It wasn't a great documentary. Was when I think it went to Showtime. But, um, and then they start talking to Bob Woodward. And I realized that the real Woodward is on a movie. Oh, screen. Jesus. <laughs> and the movie Woodward is sitting in front of me. <laughs> Like, I was so glad I didn't smoke before the
1: uh, before the <laughs> Like, am I in a dream? Am I in a dream right now? Anyway, he would he would have yeah, so had a wry smile for his uh his old mate Woodward up there.
2: <laughs> I think so. I mean, I was just also tripping out on the whole thing. He would have probably, <laughs> and then it was
1: he would have moderately it was tripped out.
2: The second the movie started on you know, the fade out, he was like out the back door, and you know I'm telling everyone like the projections I was like Redford was here, he was sitting right here. And I like yeah, sure he was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just for you, man, far out. Look,
2: <laughs> but, I- yeah. So I watched the uh, I watched Redford watch Bob Woodward, and it blew my mind.
1: <laughs> I have to I have to say because it, it is the way of One Heat Minute Productions to throw things out in the universe that sometimes happen. God, I'd love to talk to Robert Redford about this movie. I think it's his best. I genuinely think from a producing perspective and from just everything that he did with this movie, this is like, there is just no way that they let a movie star of his caliber do something that has so much potential to fail so close to the events that happen. And there's also like with all the ingredients and there's also no way that it should be allowed to work. Like, there's just no way that it should be allowed to work in any way, shape, or form. And in this, it completely works. Like, he just completely and utterly works every minute of it. So, yeah, I mean, look, Mr. Redford, Mr. Hoffman, Mr. Woodward, Mr. Bernstein, if you're listening to all the President's Minutes, here's your first invitation. <laughs> um, Let's get to Bill Goldman.
2: All right. Now here's, here's where I'm kind of a heretic cause I am not the world's biggest William Goldman fan. I think this script is magnificent. I think it's incredible, but I, and it doesn't have any of the usual Goldmanisms. It's not like, it's not snarky. It doesn't have all the goofy buddy humor. You know, it's very, it's very stripped out. And I wonder how much, you know, in my forensic tourism I'm doing in my head was that, you know, Pakula just lining that stuff out because uh, but Goldman, I never got the Butch Cassidy deal. I remember, and I'm not alone in this. Gene Sisko got fired from his first job as a critic for he pan Butch Cassidy in the Sunday it's good.
1: Oh my God! And
2: I don't, I don't. I'm sorry, ladies. I hate the Princess Bride. And <laughs> <laughs> this <laughs> Goldman formula of like anachronisms are funny. Like I'm going to have cowboys, but they talk like people from 1968, and he kicked a guy in the nuts, <laughs> and then like, oh, it's. It's a fairy tale, but they're all Borscht Belt comics. (laughs) 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 None of it works for me. And then I read, you know, everyone's got to read it. But you
1: do have that, the ghost in the darkness tattoo that you haven't shown people for this podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I remember enjoying that movie quite a bit. I'm not sure. (laughs) I haven't seen it since it came out. (laughs) No, the thing, though, the, um, the, the... those books he wrote, though, are really like you would think that Butch and Sundance, like that movie, cured Legionnaires' disease or something, because like the way he, thought, yeah. and he, and he publishes the whole screenplay in the middle, like, when I decided to have Butch kick the guy in the nuts, I knew I was changing the face of cinema forever. <laughs> <laughs> It's, and then, and then the, the choice to have them say shit when they jump. It's like, oh, you're so daring. What would we have done without
1: you? <laughs> I love your snark. It's the best. I I genuinely think this is his best script too. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in a generation just before us though has like this incredible impact of like, you know, mm-hmm. people like Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, and then some of those other mentees of Bill Goldman, like it is the seminal movie, it is the game-changing movie, and for them, it's like the movie that made them want to be filmmakers. It's that weird thing of like it's right then, '69, still technically in New Hollywood, but it's like the blockbuster of the New Hollywood era, if you like. It's it's had such a profound influence, and I go back, and I I'm not quite as hard on it as you are. Like I like I like uh, maybe it's because I'm a fan of like revisionist Westerns just in general of this era, even though like a lot of people forget that like in 56, John Ford made the searches, which is the revisionist Western right. <laughs> And people are like, Oh, all these revisionist westerns in are the 60s and 70s. And you're like, Hey guys, um, John Ford like did it. Like he did that. And you're yeah. all just chasing that. And then like Marty makes, you know, taxi driver, which That's is terrible. that too. And you know,
2: yeah, it's a, every straighter script and switch hardcore again the other night, you know, it's <laughs> like, Oh, Trader made the searchers again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the like, exactly. So it's 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 already kind of been done. But I do like a revisionist Western. But I do get your point of like, for me, this movie is the pure, is the pure execution. Because there's no
2: the other Butch thing too is it's based on the same Butch Cassidy is based on the same story as the Wild Bunch. Yes. You know they're both they're both fictionalized versions of the same gang. Sorry, I'm, I mean Butch's gang was called the Wild Bunch, and I'm a Peck and paw guy. Yes. You know, that's my version of
1: it. Yeah, look. Same year too, right? Yes, yeah, so, some people like The Dark Knight and other people like Heat because it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the same. One's got Batman in the Joker. The other has Al Pacino, Robert <laughs> De Niro. Like, it's just, you know, you, you each have your preferences and you decide which ones. And, you know, and, and particularly with this story, you know, all the presidents... There are crummy, you know, TV movies um, that are made about this story and these characters, and Spotlight. <laughs> I think Spotlight's about something else, but I think McCarthy. Oh, <laughs> if right, you
2: said crummy TV movie, and I just jumped right to. Yeah, I don't I'm think- sorry. I got I'm a, I'm a heretic for as a Bostonian here. Because I I gave Spot like two and a half stars. And I, <laughs> I thought it was yeah, one of the most visually underwhelming films released that year.
1: It's it's a it's got great performances and there's very good chemistry, but I agree with you. I I don't have the same visceral reaction like I I was talking earlier to Maria Lewis, who's one of my dear friends, author, writer, you know, um, uh, film critic too, and she's. She's like, oh, I know I watched Spotlight on repeat. She's like, I love Spotlight. And she's like, I really like all the presidents men too, but Spotlight is better for me. And a few people I've spoken to, like Spotlight resonates with them. I'm not sure if it's the content, like whether it's the content of the story or, you know, they're not as it's sort the, of... It's
2: got to be because it can't be the visual.
1: It's, yeah, that, I'm much more of like, you talk about this movie being all atmosphere and so many times like doing the same grind of the same process over and over again and the talent. Because you can imagine if it wasn't Pacula paired with Willis, how boring could this movie have been? It could have been the Mm. most boring movie of all time. And I think with Spotlight, the content sort of hopes to get you through because it is like so inflammatory and so crazy and that's where you can still hang on to it. But there's like, there's no library scene in Spotlight. There's none of these beautiful split diopter grind. There's not the agony of like, or, or like strategizing in a Macca's that's just full of people like, you know, and then going back out into the grind and then the music playing and just this presence of like this whole city is just this massive, rotten, corrupt place. Like that is just like all, all the good people are in here. Look, like, you're surviving. They haven't got long to go because it's just, it's just going to infect you. Yeah. Spotlight doesn't have any of that. That's
2: another me. thing that, uh, that, that struck me too, watching it again, the incredible smallness of Woodward and Bernstein. who not, they're never given the hero shots of, you would expect from movie stars of that caliber no. and there's constantly with the overhead shots and the camera pulling back wide you know you're always expanding to take in the city around them and realizing how like infinitesimal these two little they look like bugs and all these overhead shots
1: little bugs going and they're gonna
2: bring the whole thing down
1: <laughs> going through all these stacks of places and they're just as inconsequential as everyone else going about their day and <laughs> and it's just <laughs> that they kind of happened to be working 20 hours a day, you know, basically nonstop um, in that way. But one thing that I think, you know, we've done it's in you have with your incredible stories, there has been a revisionist history in and of itself with all the president's men and bill Goldman as a result of his brilliant writing about adventures of the screen trade. And then what lies did I tell? And so um, I, I love that you said like there's, People have done, people literally have done the forensic examination of like, did Bill Goldman write this script? You know, because Redford has said famously that he and Pakula like did lots of edits or yeah. may, maybe rewrote it. And I think what's great is like, I think Bill Goldman wrote this script and I think the forensic boffins on the internet have discovered, like they pretty much <laughs> have done it, but it's just the, that's where people, you go, if you want to learn what a director does, watch a mm-hmm. watch <laughs> Pakula at this time. And then read the script because it's not on the page. It's in his head. Right. It's, it's, like, it's not on the page. It's in his conception of how the scenes need to flow and how the actors need to relate to one another and how you pare back a scene or take away a line or you know get someone else to stumble into someone's line to give it that organic chemistry. And it's like he's the guy that's behind the lens going, no, we're going to do it like this. We're going to make it like this. We're going we're to we're basically do kind of what I did in the parallax view except it's going to be the real world. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be the real world. We're going to try and make it as organic and yes. back as possible.
2: Yeah, the thing—the you know—you talk about Goldman's writing about film. He used to have that column in Premiere. Yes, and it used to make me crazy because the one that the one that really got the my bonnet was who's going on and on about how Martin Scorsese doesn't know how to tell a story. <sighs> Now, you and I have podcasts. <laughs> I always go to the barricades when people talk trash about Marty. <laughs> but he wrote this whole thing, trashing not just gangs in New York, but every Scorsese movie about how, how unsatisfying, dramatically, Taxi Driver is. <laughs> the King of oh, Comedy, he, he just eviscerated all these. Now, Goldman had a movie in theaters at that time that he had written, and the movie was called Dreamcatcher. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. And I believe it
2: was just before, he'd written Absolute Power, which is one of the dumbest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> now, you've got your name on those, and you're out there going, that's crazy guy. He doesn't know how to tell a story. Like, have you seen Dreamcatcher? <laughs> There's a part when Thomas Jane answers a gun because it's a phone with a psychic message from his friend. <laughs> and, like, the gun wakes and- It's John Wayne's gun given to Morgan Freeman to help fight the aliens. And he answers the gun like a phone and says, Jonesy, I knew it would be you. Well, who did you think was calling on the gun?
1: (laughs) Who did you think was calling on the gun? Like, oh,
2: shit. It's a a robocall again. They want me to vote. want to know who I'm voting for.
1: Oh, God. I forgot that movie. I think I blanked it out. Because as soon as Damian <laughs> Lewis was talking to himself, one in the American, he's really generic and accent at the time, which sort of sucked back then, but he's figured it out now in billions. Like he's figured it out. But back then it was terrible. And then he's like, he'd go from that into like, Jonesy it? And I just remember him doing that, and I was like, "Oh
2: yeah, what? a British villain Mister Gay." What, what <laughs> Mister Gray? But they Mister Gay?
1: What is even this movie? Yeah, it's really strange. It's it's funny, you know. It, it's funny. Uh, That's a it's, bizarre
2: it's, film because it's like it's oh, super yeah, budgeted. Like where it's cast and John Steele shot it. Like, it looks really expensive and nice.
1: Yes. <laughs> And has a lot of like actors on the up, you know, it's like all those guys on the yeah. upswing as far as career, you can tell that they're casting for, oh, these guys are on the upswing. So this should be like a, a really ripper. It's really funny how you can, people can be, people can be prescriptive about the way that one film does work or doesn't work. And like, I would totally hear a criticism of Gangs of New York and be like, oh, it's a not, not a satisfying story and go, all right, well, let's unpack that. Like, like, tell me, tell me what mm-hmm. you're saying. But then to go on and make more sweeping generalizations that it doesn't work ever, it's like, wait, 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 wait. Are we talking about Gangs in New York? Because let's just go back. Let's finish the conversation. Because anything you've got to say about the lack of satisfaction in Goodfellas or Taxi Driver (laughs) or Mean Streets, just Raging Bull, like maybe the greatest. Oh,
2: Raging Bull was a big bugbear for him. Like, you know, that doesn't give the audience anything they want.
1: And it's not meant to. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well I know this is why I hate industry columns. yeah I kind of
1: shit he, it was a fun industry column though it was fun because also <laughs> one thing you do have to love about Goldman with that is that like he was sort of you know he was Not at his most prolific period or his most critically louder period at the time that the column was, like, hitting its absolute heights. But you do kind of have to love that someone can be in the industry and then also talking shit about it. You have to have that love about it, knowing you. It's like, (laughs) I do like that people can be deeply candid, like, in it. Like, Mm -hmm. they're in the system and also be like, you know what? It's not always hunky-dory here it's not always fun to have these conversations you know it's not always fun to 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 be in this. oh no industry. right
2: i just wish you had i wish you had better taste i mean
1: I love it. <laughs> he's a great writer but i wish i had better taste you know what he had great he executed greatly on this he and it was so funny he is this is the movie he said he would never go back and do again because of just the the pressure the interference the egos the time you know the, oh, yeah. the 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 Nora Ephron coming in and having a crack at scenes, and Redford and Hoffman wanting their own stuff, and obviously uh, then Bacula having a very particular vision. Um, all of that, all of that stuff. Well, the
2: structural brilliance. I mean, you'll hand it to them, because just the idea to end on their big fuck up. Yes. You know, that's like where the like the second act is. What do they call the all is lost moment in screenwriting manuals? Yes. And that's where the movie can end, because you know everything's going to work out, so yes. we don't need to sit through all the rest of this.
1: <laughs> no.
2: And you have a wonderful monologue of it by Robards that closes it out, and you're like, yes, I don't need anything else. No, we're good.
1: No. And I just love, I love watching these guys in the newsroom working. Gives you that great little bit of hope. <laughs> they're, they're just grinding. <laughs> we're just going to keep writing the shit out of these stories. We've gone through all this stuff. We've got this down. Yeah, the
2: inauguration's high. on. They're the inauguration's on. And hey, people are great. watching,
1: and they're just... There's something so great about that. We get the role see- of
2: the television in the movie is really funny too. It's always this ironic counterpoint, and like everyone's staring at it, and it's saying something that's just patently false, or it's a stupid, misleading <laughs> thing. And you know. like but, TV is this sort of villain looming over in the corner.
1: And but also there's there's a couple of times where TV does do the right thing in this movie in the archival footage, and it's because it's it's giving someone a platform who has no time for the newspapers. Like you get like one of the polit- politicians or whatever that's sitting down and then being grilled by a TV anchor. So today in the Washington Post, they accused of this. And it's like, these are thousands of man hours. And we did all this investigation and we did this, did this. And and then the question was, thanks to the TV anchor, did you know this? And he goes, no, I didn't. And it's like, it's <laughs> like there's that great moment where it's like, oh, there is some, um, the power is when they, when the platform gives you the big targets, but you ask the right hard questions of like, why didn't this happen? And then they kind of get stuck. And that's where you can see these guys getting skewered on the national stage in the most digestible format. You know, you don't have to read countless pages of the post. If a good journalist has a, as a political leader on there and ask the right grilling questions, they're great, man, this is a good move. So
2: I know you got into it a little with Bilga, but where are you on the post? <coughs> the
1: Spielberg film? Uh, I really like I I like the writing of that movie. I like I, I like the performances, I especially like the faces because it's got a great there's a great lot of character actors that are just littered through this movie. Mm-hmm. But I think that for me the it's 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 just a more dramatic telling. Like Spielberg is flexing a different set of dramatic muscles and it just feels like for me it just doesn't work because I I like the anti-drama. I love this movie so much yeah. that I love the anti-drama of this. And so with Spielberg, he's pa- a much more painterly, melodramatic brush in some instances, like underscoring with Williams and that 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 scene with uh, Streep uh, sort of walking out of the courtroom at the end. I just it did that. Oh, yeah. that, I just, that just didn't drive with me. It's an entertaining movie, but it's just a bit too, you know, you know when when you see someone nursing the papers on the plane and there's like a dutch angle like an overhead dutch angle like like down <laughs> the, like like uh, on the in, in the fuse like in in the actual column of the plane like I, I just was kind of a bit it was just a little bit underscored of like over over dramatics and i one of the things from going from you know some of my favorite movies are really different on this but like with heat is so hyper stylized and maybe this is like mm-hmm. the the complete opposite way that I appreciate movies is that this is effortless and anti-dramatic, and the drama is in tension and in silences and in reactions. Like even in, in. In that moment, in this exact scene that we talk about, when Warden's Harry finishes the sentence of like he's got a uh, he's got a plaque on his wall that says when you got him by the balls, the hearts and minds will follow. There's this beautiful moment that Redford gives, and that. Pakula gives Redford where he looks at him and his eyes all the way that I read that his eyes do this he sort of goes is this for real like is this for real and then when he <laughs> and then when he cognizantly like understands oh this is for real and also oh shit this is who we're dealing with he then gets this sort of bit mm-hmm. of steel in his jaw a little bit of a clench and he turns back into the end of the scene and so just little there's not enough air and not enough anti-drama for me in the post. And that's more of a stylistic choice of how Spielberg was constructing the story. Maybe it was the way that he in his head tried to differentiate himself. You know, he loved presidents, but maybe didn't want to look like he was aping presidents. Well, I
2: think no, because it's like a thirties newspaper comedy for most of it. Like that was (laughs) the big shock when I saw it, I thought it was going to be this very self serious journalism is important. And it's, Spielberg doing Howard Hawks half the time where he's trying <laughs> yeah. to see how many people he can get on the phone at once in one scene. Yes. It becomes this contest where like when he's like rustling them all in and out of Hank's house and the kids got the lemonade stand going <laughs> and it becomes this great little, you know, it's, I agree with the melodramatic stuff in the movie didn't work as well at all for me, but just, you know, Hank's in a newspaper office screaming at everybody no, and that, them all talking no, over
1: that uh, all, all of that stuff is great. All of that stuff is great, <laughs> I, it, it, and for me, it was just more the style. Whereas, like the aesthetic yeah. and the style, and it
2: almost doesn't quite fit with the story they're trying to tell. It's a very serious story about a war that killed a lot of people that could have been prevented, and we're just running around with Marilyn the caftan. <laughs> they're in and out of the parties,
1: <laughs> but I think that, like, I, I think that that's all. Ult- like, I think that's ultimately where they're going is like mm-hmm. maybe you know. Especially those sort of revelations for himself as Bradley personally later is like, what relationship have I had with politics mm-hmm. that that has maybe made us be too, too sort of um, I don't know too, too, too chummy. yeah too chummy with this office and this idea mm-hmm. and and even if we are mates no, with him, he's
2: talking about Jack.
1: He's talking about Jack, he's yeah, even got, Jack. And and that like completely surrendering to the idea that no, this is not our game. Like people might like us, they might see us, they might respect us, but when they're a story, there's a completely different outlook. I actually really that's one thing I deeply love in the post is that outlook of like, hey, we're journalists. We can be we can be friendly with these people, and we can be cordial, but we cannot be friends if they're the story. They're the story. You know this kind of sucks. It's not very exa- <laughs> being an investigative journalist and 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 uh, being an investigative you journalist. You
2: can't have Bob McNamara over the house anymore.
1: That's exactly right. Like because they're going to be the story. You know, you can you have to choose that. So it's kind of a life. That's But yeah, I I was a little bit more on the stylistically I just it didn't jive with me as much. But I should, you know, I but also that's because I've watched this movie all the President's Men—that is like hundreds of times, um, and I've probably watched the post twice. And I could probably do with another—I could probably do it with another watch. And I watched them pretty much close to its release, so with all that familiarity. But maybe I should just jump back. Could jump back in and uh, check. And it of course,
2: out. the best All the President's Men remake is Zodiac.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Especially the agony, and and the, even. And David Finch is like, oh, you you want an ending that, you know, is just sort of a cliffhanger that is not specific? You know, hold my beer. (laughs) He's on my beer. You know, a freaking guy being being interviewed in an airport bathroom, basically. It's like... Yeah, that's immaculate. And that
2: first hour in the newsroom, you know, it's the same fluorescent lights, it's the same shitty desk. Beautiful. And, you know.
1: What a stunner! Yeah, the Chronicle. I love that. And the that opening shot. He just was. That's you know, that's such a Fincher thing. But it's it was so beautiful. That the the um, the mail cart through that office is just such a great way to get into that world. And again, desks are just mounting with crap papers everywhere, scribbles. um, Graysmith's great because obviously he's cartooning all the time. So there's just Little, little cartoons of every single thing, all over the place.
2: The last, the last adult downy performance.
1: Right? <laughs> oh, he did do the judge, and I am actually deeply a sucker for that movie because of my daddy issues. But that's um, that's another. Topic. Oh, wow. that's a topic. That's
2: a long picture. We'll, we'll do that <laughs> another time.
1: <laughs> uh, but you know, it. We we talk about we talk about Zodiac too. But again, Fincher, love Bill Goldman, favorite movie. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But yeah, I think it was.
2: Fincher was more of a PaCula guy, I would assume, just because. You know. Yeah, yeah. Over- especially in terms of the lighting scheme. <laughs> yeah, he hates eye <laughs> as much as uh, <laughs> as much as Gordon Willis. Why are you shining a light on the eyes?
1: <laughs> oh, so perfect. Well. I can't really think of a better way to end than your, um, Gordon Willis. Why are you shining the light in their eyes, <laughs> mate? Thank you so much for being a part of all the President's minutes and going down. Look, like, this was your biggest name drop podcast ever.
2: I know. I, I don't know how I can ever top this. Too
1: many anecdotes. You watching, you watching Bob Woodward from this movie, watching Woodward, and your head nodding. I'll explode. never
2: top that experience, like I, I
1: if you were gonna the, follow the, a the vi- most
2: surreal thing. That-
1: if you had to file a review for that movie I would just love seeing you get outside And just call your editor and go I just didn't even watch a frame of that Like I just like I, I was- would have
2: to write like What Robert Redford thought of every line
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Redford rolled his eyes at- <laughs> Mr. Redford rolled his eyes At another Dick Cheney quote
2: <laughs> <laughs> He nodded his head approvingly At the filibuster <laughs> Then the resolution passed And he shook his head
1: <laughs> Oh god Mate, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. You're the best. And uh, and I hope that you uh, enjoyed, as part of One Hit Minute Productions, Xander Berkeley talking about Ralph.
2: Marvel. Sit down!
1: Sit down! A huge thank you to the incredible Sean Burns. He is hilarious He's extremely talented and articulate. And if you want to find his great and sardonic Twitter, it is at Sean M. Burns. You can follow all of his stuff there and you can even go to his website, for which gives an archive of everything that he does at splicedpersonality.com. Splicedpersonality.com is the best place to find Sean. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host Blake Howard and producer of Increment Vice as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at Minute on Instagram and on Twitter or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month, you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Advice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please, subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed.